Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We understand that the union is saying that they made an offer and the government has not responded. And we also are getting some reporting here as we delve into this that the work from home is part of a part of the sticking issues. We're going to get into it. I would like to welcome Charles St. Armand, chief economist at Alberta Central, who previously worked at the finance department in the Bank of Canada. Good afternoon, Charles. Thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. You know, I'm reading as I watch the news, and I'm always looking for anything that might change public sentiment. It is powerful, Charles. How would you read it right now? Do the liberals have the public on their side, or do the workers who have walked out have the public on their side? I think it's still unclear. I think a lot of the public still understand that considering uh, the high inflation we've had in Canada uh, over the past year and a half or so that many workers have seen a decline in their purchasing power. And in some ways, it's normal for workers to ask to be compensated, not to uh, be uh, uh, poorer because of the higher inflation. I think where the public opinion could start shifting is if the demands are much higher and more than to just cover the loss in uh, purchasing power. It is. You know, Canadians are going to look at those numbers and perhaps not see them if they're working for the private sector here. It's always been a bit of a tussle, hasn't it, between the private and the public. But in these times, as you've just outlined, we're feeling different things. Is this more intensified, in your opinion, that feeling of why them, why not me? Well, it's probably intensified because everyone has seen a big uh, hit on their uh, personal finance over the past year. So there's, as I mentioned, the very the sharp uh, increase in inflation, but also for anyone who has a mortgage or any type of debt, seeing also interest rate rising so rapidly. So uh, households in general in the country are feeling that financial squeeze. So seeing big wage increase in the public sector that are not being seen in the private sectors can uh, probably create some uh, uh, some tensions there. It is. And when we talk about it, it is powerful, isn't it? I mean, we always see these walkouts. I've covered, certainly discussed and looked at them and covered them for a couple of decades. And how the public fields gives the government power both ways. So we could put the pressure on and you can see the, the unions trying to really equate themselves with the average Canadian. I mean, historically, would you agree? I mean, if it, the way the rest of us feel about it can affect what turns out for these workers. Yes, because obviously you need, they will need uh, the unions to have some public support uh, so that it's a bit easier for them to justify uh, being uh, being on strike. And a way, and that's one of the uh, the questions I have in my mind, is that how much, what will be ultimately uh, agreed between the government and the uh, public workers uh, union, how much that kind of comprehensive package will kind of set the tone for other sectors in the economy, uh, both on, on the uh, public side, either at the provincial level, but also on the private side. Like some private mm-hmm. sectors might be looking at and th- that uh, wage settlement and be like, well, okay, yeah, we might need to bonify our uh, offers. So there's also that that I think the general public is also looking is that, well, if they get a good uh, contract, maybe that could trickle down to me. Absolutely. Every company, this impacts everything. Everybody's watching it. It is kind of, would you agree? I mean, post-pandemic, it's a big test of worker power, would you say? Well, it's a big test because, one, it's a big, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot of workers. You're talking 150,000 workers uh, that are on strike. It's a relatively powerful mass. And there's some details that are still kind of, New post-pandemic, like we were mentioning earlier, uh, that um, the uh, working from home is one part of the issue. So it's not just about pay and salaries. It's also the, those more flexible work conditions that are also 
being uh, being negotiated that could have also some uh, impact on the rest of the uh, the economy and to the private sector. No, it's true. It is a little bit of a snapshot of just everything. And I just want to stay with that for a moment before we have to take a break here. But the work from home has been a sticking point we see. And some of the reporting and some of the the information that I'm getting is that it's a big sticking point. It is a very modern demand from these government workers. But it plays out economically if people stay at home. A lot of these people work in Ottawa. I mean, this has such a ripple effect and could affect so many other sectors of the economy. Yes, and, and I think that in some ways the pandemic has created that new set of or that new workplace where suddenly you don't have to commute every mm-hmm. single day to uh, to work. So it allows you a bit more economic freedom, either that you don't need a second car or two, you can live slightly further away from from city centers and being able to uh, to afford a, a cheaper home and have better finance in the end. So it, it's it, it's it has financial and non-financial implication. If the right to work at home, if they they get that extended, does that take the air out of the argument for private sector as well? Are they paying? You, know, we, you and I were just talking about the monetary factor. Are they also watching private sector on what's decided here? Is this going to set set a model? Yeah, probably. But I think from my own experience and my own work and from speaking to colleagues in different areas, that employers actually been in general in the private sector relatively flexible, depending obviously on the type of work. But for, mm-hmm. um, I know for myself as an economist, they've been very uh, flexible at, give, at allowing two or three days from home, yeah. depending on the sector. Yeah, that I, hybrid, that hybrid model. I'm sure you saw the news. There's a, there's a poll and from Angus Reid that says, and we've been just talking about public sentiment, that half of Canadians do support the right of these public servants to work from home. Does that surprise you? Were you expecting that? Um, it doesn't surprise me uh, that much. Okay, I think. Uh, in the post-pandemic world, we've kind of seen, and many Canadians have experienced it themselves, they started working from home and realized that, huh, I can be as productive as, <laughs> as I was in the office, and I don't have the cost of commuting. I don't have to uh, get ready in the morning, to, so, and I have the flexibility where I can do other things at home at the same time. So, and I think a lot of those who have enjoyed it realize that, yeah, it's actually a great perk of the uh, modern workplace. It is. And it remains to be seen whether or not they're going to get it. So, I mean, they want more money and they want remote work. And I just want to ask you, too, about this 13.5% wage hike over three years. Is that a bit rich as Canadians look at this, Charles? Well, I think there's I think the first question we have to ask yourself, and I don't have the answer, is how much have they seen a decline in their purchasing powers in recent years? Because yes, you've, we've had the high inflation of, that we've had in 2021, 2022, but were they in some way, was there some catch up that needed to be done previously? I don't have the numbers. I cannot comment with certainty on that. So that's one aspect that we need to look at. But if we were, if there is no catch up, it looks quite big considering uh, what we, we've had in terms of inflation in recent, in recent uh, years and what we expect in uh, the next few years. So it, it might be an issue where it actually could be inflationary. It could. And that's what I want to ask you. We're starting to see these projections. So it's not just about worker power. It's not just about testing how we work in these modern times. It may get to the core and aggravate one of Canadians' biggest worries because it's about economic downturn. It's about the big R, a recession and inflation as we're watching. You know, there has been some pain as we at least got to this point in inflation to keep it down. Do you agree as a as an economist that there yeah. is a risk here? There are clear risks. And actually, if we go back last fall, 
I know, I remember the Bank of Canada or the governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem, had a lot of, uh, I've taken a, a lot of heat from various uh, unions when he said that we have to be con- careful in terms of what we ask in terms of wage demand and wage increases. And it, that's what he has in mind is that if people start asking wage increase, I don't too big and maybe also too much front loaded, then they have a big increase in wage that actually continues to fan the, the flames of inflation. What you want to see is that, yes, it's normal for workers to ask for their purchasing power to be uh, reestablished to what it was pre uh, the, 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 uh, the sharp increase in inflation. But can we spread that on multiple years rather than doing it in one year? So to kind of to prevent further inflationary pressures. Obviously, so so would you do you think what the big ask here falls under that because it's over three years? Uh, yeah, I think I think there's two part there. Like I think it, there's a lot the wage increase again, depending on how much they are is needed to kind of reestablish their purchasing power, but it seems big. I think it might be and it actually might need to be spread out over five four years. Might be a bit. Oh, okay. Easier on inflation. It's just like if we just think about inflation, the more spread it in time, the more the adjust the readjustment is, the less inflationary it will be. So there's kind of two parts. You, know, you want to be the increase to be not too big, but also spread it a bit more so they're not too upfront in creating uh, more upside on on inflation. All right, before we take a break, and after, and when we come back over the next break, we are going to take your calls, 1-800-263-2428. We're reading the polls. We'll get, we'll get our listeners' impression on how they feel about that remote work and also this deal. But I do want to ask you, Charles, as you say, perhaps it should be spread over a little bit. You know, historically, as we watch economically how these, these strikes work, it seems to me we're getting into the tense part here and things can change. I mean, if Canadians are put at a disadvantage, if the tax filing doesn't work, I mean, sooner or later in a country that it is having a big discussion, whether it's broken or not, from passports to so many things, if, it, if things appear not to be working, that could change public sentiment very quickly. Would you agree? Yes, I would agree. Well, we have to, to take into account that in the first few days, it's probably easier because there's probably a bit more support for uh, the public towards the, uh, the the work action. But we have to take into it to to keep in mind that it costs about the economy it costs the economy about two hundred to three hundred million dollars a day just because of all the service that are not given from the passport to what's going on with the CRA and the tax returns. So. In the short run, there's some sympathy, but the longer the strike lasts, you'll start to see more uh, of the, a greater share of the population that's being affected and seeing the negative part for their own uh, activities. And they will start to turn, uh, or it will turn public sentiment probably against the strike. This is not our first rodeo hearing from those who are speaking up from national security in the military that perhaps we were not stepping up to the job. We've debated as a country how long, certainly uh, since I can remember, are we doing enough? We were so thrilled with ourselves as peacekeepers. And then when we hear otherwise, it hits us inside. And what a week that we've had. We've had the revelations as we watch the Chinese election interference. We have the leak from CSIS. Okay, that happened a month ago, but now we're hearing more. We're hearing about Russian interference, perhaps, and national security and a call for more. And then we have the leak from the Pentagon on the Discord chat room putting our prime minister in international headlines, admitting to NATO, we cannot hit that 2%. What does Canada need to do? Is our military, is our national security in crisis? These are enormous questions for our time. We have a wonderful guest, Andrew Leslie, retired Lieutenant General, the Honorable Andrew Leslie, a former commander of Canada's Army, Chief Government Whip, 
and previous a federal MP. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us, Andrew. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, here it is. I mean, you've spoken up about this before. We've looked at it and talked about it as Russia invades Ukraine. There's been an increased focus on NATO and who our commitment and what Canada does. When we saw the leak this week that put the prime minister in news stories around the world, Andrew, what did that do to this conversation, in your opinion? I think it sharpened the tone. Canada is a trading nation. Most of us come from far away. And we bring with that a knowledge of the world. We bring our own biases. We, but we know the world. We're all, we, you know, we've come from all over. And where our trade flows, so should, too should our interests and values. We're not doing all that we could or should internationally to contribute international peace and stability. And that's obvious. Why? Because the armed forces right now aren't ready. And ready is a function of people, equipment, facilities, and training, all of which cost money. And recently, the money hasn't been getting to the troops to buy them that capability and that readiness. And our allies are getting irritated with us right now. They are. Yeah, I, I want to go through both of those aspects. Let's talk about the military themselves right now. They are not ready. As you said, the money's not getting through. This has always been a story here in Canada. Has has there been a blockage of the financial arteries more under this government? Is it a partisan thing? It is a way of looking at the military as Canadians can grapple with this. Hmm. Well, there's definitely a blockage. This government has promised for eight years now to dedicate increased sums to the armed forces, which, to be fair, they have. But it hasn't actually all gotten down to the troops in terms of monies left on the table. About three, two to three billion per year that was promised as of the defense policy of strong, secure, engaged has not been spent or not even been asked for by the deputy minister and the ministers. So the money's there. They don't feel they can spend it, so they don't ask for it, and they don't get it. And that means the troops, when the call to arms came out to send a brigade to Europe to help in Latvia, mm-hmm. we weren't ready to go. Our equipment is in a poor state of repair. The armed forces are missing roughly twelve to 15,000 people between full-time and part-time. Our facilities are old and aging, and it's time to step up to the plate and do our fair share of international duty and responsibilities. Look, we consider ourselves a peacekeeping nation. We have between 35 and 50 peacekeepers doing UN operations right now. That's half a school bus. We've got less than 1,000 troops in NATO. We used to have a full brigade there 12, 15 years ago when we had less money and less people. So we've really got to do more. It's urgent. It's a crisis. All right. I want to go back to the recruitment and the numbers and everything, but let's just put everything in context because it has been a very powerful week on on this issue. There are we're also seeing and reading in these reports that, and you've just indicated as well, our allies. I don't know. Are they getting restless? Are they getting ticked? I mean, how how would you describe it? Because we're starting to hear that that they don't feel that they can rely on us. Is that true? And if so, how how dangerous is this for Canada? Opinions will vary depending on where you sit or stand. Um, members who support the government will obviously say, no, everything's fine. Nothing to see here, folks. Let's move along. Perhaps some others might think, well, we're not actually contributing anywhere near 2%. So that means, though, The rest of our allies are, in large measure, I think we're in the bottom four of NATO in terms of percentage. That means others are contributing more of their monies to defense and security, especially considering the threat posed by Russia or perhaps China. And because we're not doing so, and we're allocating that money to social programs or whatever the government's priorities are, that means others have to do more. And we live in an interconnected world we believe in alliance structures, and you need alliances to, to fend off the Russian bear, because who knows where they may try and go next. So you don't right, want to be alone see, in a world that's a lot yeah. more dangerous than it was a year and a half ago. 
How can we read the the messaging here? I see that the NATO Secretary General at the Center for Defense and Security Studies is, is their meeting is bringing up this 2% and saying, come on, allies, you've got to do it. And would you say that this is a message just to Canada, Andrew? I think it is. I think it's directed yeah. specifically yeah. at us and the other five or six that have no real indication yet that they've started on a path towards 2%. And our economy, uh, we're a blessed nation. We've got a fantastic workforce. We've got enormous wealth in terms of land and mineral assets. Our economy is 2,000 billion per year, 2 trillion per year. And we allocate right now about 27 billion, which sounds like a lot of money, and it is, but when you've ignored facilities and equipment for 8, 10, 15 years, really the last time we had a big surge on was during the Afghan war, which, by the way, mm-hmm. we were spending mm-hmm. quite a lot of money quite quickly and very effectively. But now the priority doesn't seem there. That sense of urgency is missing. And that sense of danger looming to our friends and allies in Europe. And we're not there right now. All right. We're about to take a break. But before we go to break, I want to ask you, you know, have you ever seen, as we say, we have the, the NATO Secretary General bringing this up. This is not just something we're discussing on the fringes or the outside of Canadian political and military conversation. This is the, the real world here. This is a time where NATO locking arms, getting stronger, not smaller. Is Have you ever seen this kind of pressure towards Canada from NATO in your time? No, I haven't. I would argue right now is probably the most time, uh, the most dangerous time to us all since the end of the Second World War. And NATO was designed to stop Russia from rampaging across Europe. NATO unfortunately chose a variety of nations within NATO to declare a peace dividend. And Putin attacked Ukraine because he thought he could win, because he didn't think NATO would respond. Thankfully, they're starting to. It's a very dangerous time, and I think all of us have got to do more. Andrew, I'm interested in, I mean, that is a, a really powerful statement that you made. How will this play out for Canada? If indeed, exactly, I mean, I'm, you and I are talking right now, and I just kind of one eye on the coverage here as the, the NATO Secretary General cranks it up. The message is coming out here. How could this have an impact on Canada's position around the world? What will it take away from us? Andrew, if we don't improve it? Well, if if we continue on the path that we're on now and the rest of our allies in NATO and elsewhere around the globe invest more money into their people and equipment to provide deterrence to stop countries such as Russia from advancing further for engaging in further slaughter or to dissuade China from its ambitions perhaps on Taiwan as part of an alliance as part of a coalition. Other countries will start to ask themselves, well, why are we doing all the heavy lifting, we Mm -hmm. being the others? Why isn't Canada? Why aren't the other recalcitrant members of NATO, which there's three or four others? And eventually, uh, trade follows political inclination. Trade follows lines of profit. Uh, Trade is also dependent on the will of governments. And trade will be impacted, and we're a trading nation. Our closest friend and ally, the United States, is asking some hard questions of us. They're asking, for example, what are we contributing to defend the Canadian Arctic? And the answer right now is, just for comparison's sake, Mm -hmm. the Canadian Arctic is vast and pristine, and we're all extraordinarily proud of it as Canadians. Uh, Alaska has 22,000 Uh, American Armed Forces personnel there. That's the American Arctic. We have 300 people, most of them part-time, great people all, with no permanently stationed equipment for surveillance or sovereignty or presence in the Canadian Arctic. That's one example amongst many. Yeah. 
It is true. I mean, we're watching and we're seeing here, as you say, at this moment, it's for Canada, but it's also all the movement geopolitically around the world. I mean, we've got the invasion of Ukraine, we've got flybys, we've got Russia on the move and in our Arctic. Andrew, let me ask you to say that we came back here. I often wonder when we talk about the military, more so now, especially as I'm listening to these emphatic comments that you're making here, what do our listeners, what do all of us, what does Canada have as a part of this? You know, governments do what what they have to do to get votes. Do Canadians care enough about this? We've kind of been living in a in a dream world. We look to America and say, oh, we couldn't have that violence. We've had a little bit of a taste of it. This is another example here. And we always thought we've got America and we don't understand the importance of this. But people like you have seen seen another side to this. They do get it. What's your view? American Street international operations and their alliance structures very seriously indeed. And they've been after us for decades to contribute more towards the North American Air Defense Agreement, which does more than air defense. And the government, our government has promised a significant sum over the next 15 to 20 years, but it's a question of spending money now. The threat is now. It's present. It's visible, especially if you live in Europe. Now, the flip side of that is, well, Canada is a peacekeeping nation. Okay, we've already talked about that. We have between 35 to 50 peacekeepers in total deployed around the world out of a population of 38 billion. So we have some work to do. We have some work to contribute to international peace and security, something that Canada's prided itself on since essentially our foundation. And we have we do. not... Yeah, it's like hockey. It's like hockey. It's in our DNA. We think so. Have we been living in a bit of a dream, Andrew? I'm not trying to be critical to all of us, but if it's a time to let the scales fall from our eyes, maybe maybe they were average or ordinary or wonderful Canadians. I don't know. Just people who don't think that they have to worry about these international things. Maybe they... They have turned a blind eye. You've just said America's engaged a little bit more on that. I would say Canada's blessed and has been blessed for decades. Geography, our close friend and neighbor, it's tough for others to get to us. They mean us ill. But all that has changed, especially with Russia's rampage. And others might well emulate Russia. The whole idea behind deterrence is to actually, with coalition of your friends, to present a strong face to any potential aggressors, and thereby all of us can benefit from from peace, stability, and trade and increases to quality of life. Canada and the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, the Canadian Armed Forces are really the concern of the people of Canada. It shouldn't be, but right now it has to be because of the consequences of getting it wrong. I don't want to sound too alarmist, but there is a potential should things go badly wrong in calculations about Russia and Ukraine, let's not forget that Russia has 7,000 nuclear weapons. So we don't want to make any mistakes as we've done in the past. But what say if Ukraine had received significant weapons in the long buildup of Russian troops before they invaded, could that have Mm -hmm. stopped the slaughter? And the answer is, yeah, it might have. We don't know, but it might have. But in Canada's place, we had nothing to offer. And here we are with, as I mentioned, the most dangerous international period in, since, this, since the end of the Second World War, where we have no alternative to say to the rest of the world, okay, well, we may not have more than 1,000 people in Latvia, but we've got tons on peacekeeping. Well, we don't. And what's in comparison to our friends and allies, if you look at the scale of Canada's wealth and our population, it's it's not acceptable, quite frankly. And I wish Canadians would pay more attention to their armed forces right now and, and ask their local elected officials as to do some explaining. 
You know, we saw that extraordinary move, 60 signatures, people like yourself and former national security, even former politicians. Again, there seems to be a disconnect there. I hear what you're saying, and your words are very, very powerful here this afternoon. And Canadians are, again, are part of this could are or should, may I say, our government send the message a little bit more to Canadians, just how important this is. I wish they would. I really do. And of course, when you talk about numbers, it's so easy to spin them, especially with the vast realms of bureaucracy at your beck and call. But the, the bottom line is NATO and our allies are asking us to do more, and we haven't really. We've promised more for the future, but we haven't actually done it. And the time is now. There's no reason why we should have the worst procurement system, or certainly amongst the worst procurement systems in the world. If it takes you 25 years to buy new ships, which still hasn't happened, for the Navy, you have a problem. If it takes you 20 years to buy new fighters for the Air Force, you've got a problem. If it takes you 15 to 20 years to buy new trucks for the Army, and you know where I'm going with this, don't accept it. And we shouldn't and mustn't because the need is now. A situation where our prime minister and then others in his government had a couple of dings from the ethics commissioner. And now we have an ethical question that is resolved around looking at the interim ethics commissioner who has now resigned because of a family relationship with a cabinet minister, the sister-in-law. So we have the House of Commons Ethics Committee now going to study this resignation, even the appointment of Martine Richard. And how important is this moment? We've got investigating the resignation of the ethics commissioner. These are layered and complex times. Joining us to help us figure us out is Ian Stedman, who's at York University, assistant professor specializing in governance and ethics law. Ian, good afternoon. Thank you for being Hi. here. Hi, thank you for having me. I know you study ethics law, but it is pretty crazy when there's going to be an ethics study on the resignation of the ethics commissioner and an unethical, perhaps, relationship and how they got there. What do you make of this uh, crazy story, really? Yeah, I think the committee is looking mostly at the appointment process of Ms. Richard as the interim ethics commissioner. Uh, they had called for her to come appear before them to provide testimony the day before she resigned. So she'll be there speaking about the actual process of being appointed because of that perception that of, of a conflict, given that, as you noted, she is the uh, cabinet minister's sister-in-law. You know, it was controversial when the story broke uh, several weeks ago, and now we have the outcome of it. But the week that we have the outcome of it, as you know, one of the big stories was the the realization broken by the CBC, when we say this, part mm -hmm. of the great Canadian conversation, this right, where we got to give credit <laughs> where credit is due here, that our prime minister stayed in Jamaica with a wealthy friend who also donated to the foundation. So a bit of irony with, these, with the resignation and the halting of the investigation and that this week, Ian, is that uh, standing out for you? Yes. So what we know about that vacation is that the Prime Minister and his people cleared it with the Ethics Commissioner beforehand. We don't know the nature of the facts given and, and whether they differed from the actual, what the actual vacation was. Um, but there is no, as we'll, there's no active investigation into that vacation. And I think what makes the resignation so interesting is that if there needs to be an investigation into that resignation or that vacation, there is no longer going to be a commissioner to commence that investigation. It's a vacant seat now, so it can't actually look into. But what we don't have yet is any information to suggest that that vacation wasn't above board. You know, people mm -hmm. may think it was the wrong thing for him to do, but there's no information quite yet to suggest that it violated any of the rules. You know, we pay attention to this and then we see, you know, what the ethics law is when we hear these stories and we're not that bothered about it, are we? In between, and is our ethics law up to par these days? 
There have been a lot of um, consultations about how to improve the legislation, and the House of Commons recently agreed that it would proceed with, I think, 13 recommendations that were made. Those amendments haven't been changed to the legislation yet. The amendments haven't been made, pardon me, uh, but hopefully they will be. There is, I think, a general consensus that there are opportunities to improve the legislation. So I think many people would like to see there be greater penalties for actually violating the law. Um, that's one of the major criticisms of the law right now, is that there doesn't seem to be much in the way of a penalty if you uh, transgress the, the ethics laws. So, yeah, there's definitely lots of room for improvement. But uh, at the end of the day, it really falls on our elected officials to do better. We, we shouldn't have to use these laws to keep them in line, hopefully, right? And there's a feeling here as we watch this and we know and we're going to go to the phones in the next segment and I know that you're, you'll stay with us here, but you specialize in ethics, law and governance. And, and there's a feeling when we hear these stories that maybe politicians, do they, they not care enough? As you say, we some want more teeth to this. If we had more teeth to it, would we not be in this situation? Yeah, no, that's Definitely uh, widely regarded criticism. If there were greater penalties for violating the act, then people would be a little more cautious about not violating it. I think that's true. But at the end of the day, it's a representative democracy. We vote to put these people in office. And the criticism against giving an ethics commissioner more power is that the ethics commissioner is unelected. In fact, they're appointed by cabinet. consultation with the other parties. So, you know, democracy is about putting people in office to represent us. We go to the polls, we put them there. They should ultimately be responsible for one another and for their conduct. And so I think the real criticism here is why are our elected officials not holding each other to a higher standard, right? Um, it, it's true. And as you say, I mean, the ethics commissioners and those who are in charge are, do it at the pleasure of the appointment. Uh, do, you know, is that something we have to realize that makes it kind of iffy here? It takes away some of the legitimacy in saying, you know, we should want an ethics commissioner to be able to remove someone from public office. We shouldn't want that. That's not how the system works. We all go to the polls. We put people in public office. There are other ways, other mechanisms to remove them. And, you know, there's laws that they break criminal laws or commit fraud. They could be removed from public office, et cetera. But we, maybe we shouldn't want the ethics commissioner to be able to remove them. What we should want maybe is stronger punishments, bigger fines, um, something like that. Like uh, a report maybe that that says very clearly that a person has violated the laws and that they what they've done is in, inappropriate. But we also want the leaders of the parties to be more vocal about what's not acceptable. We've been looking at different ways of treating those who are mentally ill, and now there is a movement in Alberta to push forward the involuntary treatment of those who are addicted. And this was not always so. There was kind of a revolution here in Canada a few decades ago that shuttered a lot of facilities that had mandatory treatment of addiction and mental illness, and we promised something better, something more dignified. And now look at how we are watching and seeing homelessness and and specifically addiction affecting all the top headlines we're worried about. We have tent cities, we have post-pandemic, a lack of treatment. We've seen our healthcare facilities just nailed to the wall with a a deluge of people. And now we're looking at different ways. Is there a new way to approach this? And and the controversy that is tied into the history, is there a revelation in these times that may make us see a pathway? Is it cruel or is it helpful? Joining me is Keith Humphreys, Professor of Psychiatry at Stanford University. Good afternoon, Keith. Thank you for joining me. Really glad to be here. Keith, let me ask you, you know, the history of this, why is it important? Because we're looking at doing it more and more these days, and it was, it was just the way it was done a few decades ago. Yeah, that's a very important uh, point to raise. I mean, it, particularly when you look at the experience mainly of people with serious mental illnesses, 
uh, you know, there was an era where they would be taken away against their will and put in pretty horrible institutions where they were treated badly and, and there was no one sort of minding the store and making sure that they were getting quality care. And, you know, that's something that can happen whenever the state has enormous power um, o- over people who have uh, serious illnesses. So you certainly don't want to go back to that. Um, neither, though, do we want to say that, therefore, it should be a free-for-all, and if someone is got an illness or got an addiction and they're doing great harm to themselves or to their uh, families or to their communities, that we should do nothing because of that previous bad experience. There has to be some smart policy between those two extremes. We're debating it anew here in Canada. What about in America? What are What are the laws there here? So we've long had uh, what are called drug courts, and there are some drug courts in Canada. I think there's many more in the United States. And what that is, is somebody who um, is repeatedly, let's say, uh, is, is engaging in theft or property destruction or other kinds of behaviors or drug dealing. And, and the judgment of the criminal justice system is it's driven by their addiction. And so the system will say, look, you know, normally you would go to jail for these crimes, but um, you you have an alternative, which is you can stay in a community, but you're going to be supervised pretty closely by a judge and you're going to get access to treatment and you're going to access to services and you're going to be regularly trusted for drugs. So it's it's not a free ride. It's an awful lot of monitoring. But if you make it through, um, you can avoid your uh, sentence, your incarceration, and often also you can get your record expunged. And, you know, the evidence on those is that, you know, people who go through that experience on average, you know, are less likely to end up in prison again. They're more likely to get into recovery and and their families are better off. So that that's, a, a, you know, a case for the, the idea that sometimes it is good um, to, to intervene in, in, in a way that is, you know, you're putting pressure on people. They may not want to do it, but you're saying, look, you, it, it's a choice between continuing doing what you're doing and, and, and going into jail. So. Um, you know, this is a time to change your behavior. I want to get back to that, but I, I want to ask you, is it controversial in America now? Uh, I think it's less so con- than it is in Canada. Just observing, oh, yeah, I, yeah. I am American, yeah. but I've been spending time uh-huh. in Canada. I think, that, I think there's a bit more controversy in Canada at the moment. Um, but, you know, we, we have, uh, you know, a lot of interest, uh, you know, at, at this point, we have, we have many people in prison. There's a lot of people, and I'm one of them, who, who want to do anything they can to keep people out of prison if possible. And this is a way to do that, a way to, you know, deflect them from that system, um, while at the same time honoring the public's quite understandable uh, wish to be safe. Um, so that's why you don't just, you know, let people go and hope for the best, but you, you monitor them carefully, provide them services, and make sure they're on a good path. You know, now there are even in there's some surprising bedfellows in this politicians who would lean to the left, like in our province of BC, are, are moving forward on this and saying not to do it is cruel. From your from your experience, have have you seen that side of this? Have you seen the goodness of it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is unpredictable, I think, who, um, where people come down on this. And I think oftentimes there's a lot to do with biographical experiences. So, you know, I certainly, uh, you know, people who would say, you know, I never, you know, pe- people who use drugs and alcohol should never be pressured in any way. It's their own bodily autonomy. And then all of a sudden their kid is in that situation and they realize mm-hmm. oh, it's more complicated than that. You know, so that, that makes a difference. It's also true that um, very few people actually believe uh, that there's never a time for involuntary uh, intervention. And, and the example I would give for that is, you know, I, I, I work in or volunteer in a neighborhood called the Tenderloin, has a lot of drug problems. I carry an overdose rescue drug called naloxone. If someone, you know, is unconscious from an opioid overdose, I can give them naloxone and bring them back. I've never had anyone say, well, you shouldn't do that because they can't consent. Mm-hmm. They're unconscious. Mm-hmm. They, everyone goes, well, no, they're going to die. You, you, it, it, this is not a time to be filling out forms. This is a time to save a life. And so I think just whatever it concedes that point that sometimes human beings are not in a state where they can make decisions uh, that will save their life and we have to act for them. So it's just a question of how broadly do you extend that principle? You, If you apply it there, are you going to apply it to somebody who's standing in a busy intersection, high on methamphetamine and about to get hit by a car? Would you would you go out there and get them or get a cop to do it? Um, someone's being violent, you know, and at some point, you know, there's a split where people say, well, that, you know, let's say they're just making a nuisance of themselves, 
not being an immediate threat, then I would, you know, people start to disagree. But I think at the extreme end, actually, there's a lot of agreement about this across political views. How does it look? How does it happen? I mean, are there families that that turn people in? I, I don't know what the phrase is, the correct yeah. phrase yeah. is, but it, yeah. is it just the courts or a, the crisis yeah. happens? There's a whole range of things. I mean, you know, some of the Albertan officials have come out and explained, you know, they, they've been influenced by the Portuguese system which is um, they have something called a dissuasion uh, a committee. And if somebody, let's say, is, you know, repeatedly caught with drugs or engaging in petty crimes are brought before it, it's, an, you know, they, they get a formal medical assessment. The goal is to help them. Uh, and that that commission uh, can say, you know, well, we, we think it's just a one time thing. You, you know, go and be well or we think you have a drug problem. We want to go into treatment. And it's allowed to put some pressure on them. It can fine people, you know, it can it can bar them from certain activities. You know, let's say they've got a drug problem, it says you you can't keep working as a cab driver until you straighten this out. But they don't throw people in jail. Um, they don't uh, put really harsh punishments on people. And my understanding is that that's not what the Albertans want to do um, either. Um, the, the cases where you would get to that more extreme end would be things where they're acutely dangerous, like somebody gets drunk, uh, you know, every other night and physically beats up his family or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. th- 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 in that case, you need more than a nudge. You need to intervene to protect the lives of the family because they have, you know, they have value. They're human beings. They have rights too. where it may come a situation where, look, you, you need to change your behavior or you will, in fact, go to jail or or we are going to put a bracelet on you that monitors your alcohol use. And if you drink again, there will be a criminal justice consequence. It really depends on the situation, what it looks like. I think most peop- most of the time, it's going to stop short of extreme penalties, except in cases where there's an imminent risk of um, uh, death, I mean, b- b- by someone else or, or the person themselves. Keith, I want to ask you, does it work? Have you seen success stories here? Have you seen those who, as you say, couldn't make the decision? It was made for them, or there was that carrot instead of the stick, and their lives turn around? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's certainly true. Addiction is a very serious disorder. And, uh, some, you know, sometimes nothing works. I mean, you know, you know, mandated treatment, voluntary treatment, changing life circumstances and all that. So I don't want to make it sound like it's simple. Um, but absolutely, if you talk to people in recovery, it is remarkable how common it is that recovery was started by pressure from outside. Uh, you know, it might have been the the spouse who says either sober up or get out or the, or the employer who says, if you come to work high one more time, you're fired or the doctor who says you keep living this way, you will be dead soon. Or the police officer who says, if I arrest you one more time, I'm going to throw you in jail. You need to you need to change your ways. And at the time, it almost always made the person really angry. Um, but uh, in retrospect, when they're in recovery and their life is doing well, then they feel gratitude. Uh, and so you know, can't always tell your immediate, the people's immediate reaction of being constrained uh, doesn't mean that they're not on a good path. Because in the long term, once they get in recovery, um, they get a new perspective on things, realize how much better life can be than they saw at the time. And they actually appreciate having had that pressure put on them. You know, one of the areas and the criteria we can judge it is how do they do when they're out? And this has been part of the criticism, you know, um, if people there against their will. And it isn't really is the way you describe it. It's just, I guess, the impetus comes from another spot. But when they're discharged, do you have any stats? Do you have any observations on whether or not it's tough, as you say, to stick to it, no matter how you got into treatment? But is there anything that would illustrate whether this works or not when they're discharged? Yeah. So one of the things for you helpful to know is that it's not always going to be uh, a residential kind of setting, you know, so where someone mm-hmm. goes away like they might if they were sent to a correctional facility and then comes out. Um, those kinds of treatments, uh, you know, don't actually have a particularly great success rate. Mo- you know, you need sometimes the stability of a residential component to, you know, for detoxification, for uh, physical safety, if someone's homeless, just so they can, you know, show up day to day and participate in treatment. But it for good care would be part of a, a like a step down process. So you would have, you know, some moments in residential, but then you would still be in touch. You would be getting outpatient services for a very long period, just like you would if you had a heart attack or you had cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the treatments that have a bad reputation deserve it are the kind of thing, send somebody away for 28 days, sort of blast them with Mm -hmm. a lot of therapy and then send them right back where they were and hope everything works out. Um, That doesn't have a very good record of success. 
You know, all these calls mention the follow-up, as you say, intensive treatment. So, in a in a in a strange way, this this idea, which to some is controversial, is almost the same as the alternative, isn't it? There's great calls for an intense follow-up here, and that this only works and is only as good as what you do after. Would you agree? Yeah, that's right. And you know, and you are. You know, even in, in, you know, in treatment, when you tell people this is what's needed, this is what's required, you know, sometimes people will disagree then and you have to persuade them of it. Um, and uh, that's that's part of, uh, you know, building trust, but also the person being willing to surrender in some sense to the process uh, and admit that they don't fully know what's needed, because if they did, they would not still be in the situation they're in. Were we wrong before? Many would get down to politics, and we know that's loud these days. But there are those who say this was a giant mistake, this experiment, and it it caused a lot of the modern ills. Would you agree? Was it wrong to shutter those facilities? Um, you, you know, it, it, some of them were horrible. You know, so um, and 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 at times that it was entirely defensible. You know, we had, you know, I certainly know in the U.S. we had horrible scandals in some. They were, you know, they were, you know, people were living in squalor. The care was abusive and all that sort of thing. It was good to get get rid of them. Um, the the challenge we had in a lot of the country was once that was done, nothing was built to replace it. Nothing more humane. You know, a, a decent care system that had, um, you know, residential actual care as opposed to sort of distant warehouses, places closer to the community and a lot of follow-up and so on. Sometimes politically, you can get the constituencies together to get rid of something, but then those constituencies don't stay together to build something new and better. And that's what happened with, with uh, us in the United States. Yeah, you know, we're rethinking so many things. How much does our current situation go into this this going back here? Because we look, it's not in a silo, mental illness or addiction. It's kind of affecting just about everything, even those who want to turn away. You can't really turn away right now, Keith, can you? That's right. That's right. It's very hard. You know, name any social problem that troubles us. Um, you know, um, not just homelessness or crime, but other ones like, um, uh, you know, quality of life for children, uh, education, health, mental health, housing, uh, infectious disease. In almost every case, you, you will find uh, there's an addiction component to it. Not all of it, but it's, it's part of what one deals with. So there's really no way, you know, to sort of pretend that addiction will go away on its own and stop affecting us and stop stop doing harm to society. It's always going to do that unless we do something about it. I want to ask you, um, uh, finally, uh, just to put this in the context of the end of the war on drugs, psychedelics being used for therapy. I mean, heck, uh, we've got psychedelics being offered for therapy for other kinds of addictions now. Are we into a... Are we into some kind of an awakening here in our view of drugs, especially in your business? Yeah, good question. I mean, psychedelic drugs, currently, we're we're early in the hype cycle, so awful lot of huge promises are being made, and most of them are not going to be true. Um, The good thing is there are some really serious scientists doing very careful research on those psychedelic drugs, and it's possible some of them could have, you know, genuine therapeutic effects for conditions, for example, like depression, uh, maybe for addiction. And if so, I'm I'm confident they'll sort it out. But the, the rest of us have to be patient and not give in to the hype because there's a lot of hype and false promises. When, and if we believe that, you can actually end up you know, harming yourself or harming someone else. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.